Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, we're going to look at today. Here's three questions we want to answer today. One of them is, what does God do? God's going to do something in this situation. In fact, this whole little narrative is just a, a dialogue between an angel, Gabriel, who spoke to Zacharias last week, and Mary. And it kind of goes back and forth. It's mainly Gabriel revealing what God's going to do, and then we see Mary respond a couple times throughout it. So it's this interaction between the two. So what we're going to see first is, what, what does God do? This is true of what God does throughout time. It may be unique to Mary, but it's tells us something about what God does in general. Second thing we're going to see is how does he do it? How does God do it? What does he do? How does he do it? And then the last thing we're going to see is, is how should we respond? When God does something like this in our lives, how should we respond? Okay, verse 1 says this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, so when, when Luke says the sixth month, look at the detail here. He's referring to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which is the story right before this. If you go up a paragraph, it said she had been pregnant for five months or she was in the fifth month of her pregnancy and she kept herself hidden. And then we come to this paragraph and it says in the sixth month, meaning in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Specific time details that Luke's recording that you would not put in if he was just making this up. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now let me just pause here and, and talk about some of these details in this passage right here that come out and, and kind of what's going on in here. The fact that God chose Mary and Joseph from Nazareth is recorded in this passage. I mean, very specific. And if you knew anything about the geography of that day, you would, you would know Galilee if you are familiar with that area, everyone would know Galilee. Jerusalem and those areas were kind of in the middle of Israel. Galilee was way up to the north. It was an area that had kind of uh, been taken over by uh, the Assyrians back in the captivity. And so there's a lot of Gentiles up in that area. It wasn't well looked at by the Israelite people, but there was still a fair number of Israelites that lived up there. So Galilee, that region, was the northern part of Israel. But Nazareth was like in the middle of nowhere in Galilee. In fact, the reason Luke recorded it, he didn't just say Galilee, or he didn't just say it happened in Nazareth, because no one knew where Nazareth was. I mean, Nazareth was like a teeny tiny, it wasn't on a main thoroughfare anywhere. It was never a place you would go visit. It wasn't like you'd say, hey, family, let's, for Christmas this year, let's all bundle up and we'll head to Nazareth this year and hang out. I mean, it's kind of like if you ever go out 359, you come across little towns like Mirando City, you hit Oilton, you hit Bruni, right? No one goes to those places for vacation, right? You don't, your destination is not, hey, what, what are we doing? Hey, next week, we're all going to Mirando City. There's a, like a water slide, I think, somewhere over there. No, in fact, you can't even stop there to get gas if you were going to Hebronville. There are cities that you pass through and maybe just glance at as you're going, but it's rarely ever your destination. That was Nazareth. Nazareth is a town like that. No one went to Nazareth. You just kind of passed through Nazareth 
on your way to get to where you really wanted to go. And yet, God chooses a woman, a little girl, a young teenager from this town. Let me ask you something. If you're making up a legend, if you're with Greek mythology or any of those things, and you want to create a religion and you want to do something that's really going to get people to come on board with it, what kind of people from what kind of place are you typically going to choose? You're going to go big city, and you're going to go popular people, and you're going to go someone who's well-respected, probably well-educated, probably you know, influential and famous with money. You couldn't get a story any different than that. This is not the story you would write if you were trying to make up something to impress people. You see, Mary, if you know anything about the Jewish culture, you know that girls in that time married as teenagers. Many of them were betrothed. That's what they called their engagement period, which was a much more firm commitment. It was usually arranged with the parents. They were betrothed for one year, and they were about 12 years old sometimes when they were betrothed. And so they would get married then when they were 13. That's the younger end of it. But 14, 15, 16, you are usually married easily by that age. So picture that for a minute. If you're a parent, picture your 13-year-old daughter. It's kind of a scary picture, right? But picture where they're at at that stage in their life and what they're wrestling with. And picture this event happening to your daughter as a young teenager. That's what's going on here. And Luke records this. Now, Luke, being a doctor, is probably going, wait a minute, all right, that can't be true. I'm going to go check with another eyewitness and see what they say. Goes to them. And after doing that so many times and hearing the exact same thing in the exact timeline, you eventually have to say, all right, I guess this is how the story is. I wouldn't have made this up, but this is what actually happened, so I'm going to record it. And it reveals something about them. We also realize that Mary and Joseph were extremely poor. Let me show you this next passage, which just comes in Luke chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, but take it to the next slide, please. In Luke chapter 2, there we go. In Luke chapter 2, after Jesus' birth, uh, Mary and Joseph take him to the temple uh, to go through a, a, a purification process that was part of the law of Moses. It says, when they came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. So if you go back into Leviticus, this is recorded in there. This is what you were to do, and it was a reminder of their time in Egypt. Every firstborn child, if you remember the story of the Exodus, when the Israelites were in Egypt. God said uh, the last plague was I'm going to kill every firstborn child in the land of Egypt. And the only ones that will be passed over from the angel of death will be those who sacrifice a lamb and they take the blood of that lamb and they put it on the doorposts of their home. And of those homes, the Lord says I will pass over and those children will be spared. Well, the Israelites were the only ones that trusted that. They were the only ones that heard that. The Egyptians all lost their firstborn child. But one of the things that God told them to do then after that is he said, every firstborn child that you have as Israelites, 
you need to offer an unblemished lamb as a sacrifice on their behalf. You need to redeem that firstborn child because I saved them back there. Now from now on, every firstborn child must be redeemed with a lamb. It was a reminder. And here's what's amazing about it. It was a reminder because guess what God was going to do for you and me eventually in Christ? He was going to offer his firstborn so that you and I could be redeemed. And he was preparing them for that. So every firstborn was to be redeemed with a lamb, that says in, in the book of Leviticus. But here is what a provision. You can go back and read this in your Bible. Here is the provision. In Leviticus, it said, redeem them with a lamb. But it said, if you are too poor, if you are so poor that you can't afford to bring a lamb, you don't even have a lamb, God made a provision for those who were extremely poor. He says, you can bring two pigeons or two turtle doves for your sacrifice. And this passage tells us here, that that's what Mary and Joseph had to offer for their sacrifice. Mary was uneducated. Joseph was probably the town carpenter in a very small, tiny, out-of-the-way town. Nothing popular about them, nothing significant about them and of themselves. And yet, God breaks into their life and uses this young woman and this couple in a very unique way. It's interesting in this passage, one of the things often misunderstood about it uh, in many places is what God says to Mary when he says, oh, favored one, or you are a favored one, Mary, I, meaning I'm going to bestow grace on you. That word, favored one, Mary, is only used one other place in the whole Bible, one other time. And, it's, and it means a grace that's given to you from God. Now, one other place it's used is in Ephesians 1, chapter 6. And if you know about Ephesians 1, chapter 6, the whole first chapter is talking about God's work of salvation and blessing in the life of believers, in the church. And he says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us. This is Paul talking about us as believers. Blessed us in the beloved. That word blessed there is the same giving of grace that God said to Mary when he says, I'm showing you favor, or I'm blessing you for this work. And now God says the same thing is true of every single believer in the person of Jesus Christ. Mary was the first one to maybe experience it in a very unique, tangible way because she was the first one to know about the actual physical, unique, present, and coming of Jesus in her life. But what she was going to bring was going to be the one that would be that blessing so that everyone who is in Christ would be part of that grace that God has shown not only to her but to every child who trusts in him. So the story goes on after these unique details and we see what God's doing in a very unique way. The story goes on and says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And I completely skipped the first point for you, didn't I? 
I could tell you guys had that look in your eye. Let me give you your first point, and we'll talk about that a little bit. When, when God reveals his will in my life, it often leaves me troubled and with questions. When God reveals his will in my life, it often leaves me troubled and with questions. That's what we see in Mary. Sometimes Mary was a, an amazing young woman, but sometimes I think we make more of her than we should or we don't think about what she did in, in enough of a way to think about what does that look like in my own life. God revealed his plan to Mary and it, it troubled her. She was troubled at first. She was afraid of what does this mean, this angel speaking to me. And then God says, this is what's going to happen to you. And she's going to say, well, how, how is this going to happen? How can this possibly be? It led to questions. You're going to see her ask a question. It's going to leave her troubled as she goes through this. This is what happens in all of our lives when God reveals his word and his will to us. In fact, there are two unique ways in which God does reveal his will to us, just like he did to Mary. One is his moral will, meaning just his word. You can open up God's word and see how he speaks to us and the things he wants us to do, how he wants us to behave. And, and you have to be honest, when you hear God's word at times, it troubles you. It, it causes you to question at times. What, what do you mean, God, I'm supposed to love my enemies? I mean, does that apply to my boss as well? Because I mean, you don't know my boss, Lord. But he says, yes, you love your enemies. He says to serve and love your spouse unconditionally. And sometimes we can find ourselves in a marriage or in a circumstance that's really difficult to do that. And you hear that truth and it troubles you. It causes you to ask some questions. Well, how do I do that, God? How do I do that with a spouse like this or when my circumstance looks like that? Maybe you're not married and maybe you've come across the truths in God's word about how he asks you as a single person to remain sexually pure until you're married. And he's revealed his will to you in that way. And, and you say, God, do you not realize what it's like to be a teenager these days? Do you not realize what's happening in my school and what everyone else is participating in and you want me to do what? You expect me to respond in how? What kind of, what kind of a way? I can't be engaged in the same way that every other kid's being engaged? It's troubling. It, it causes us to question. That's his moral will. That's just dealing with the things that he's made very clear about how he wants us to act and behave. But God also reveals his sovereign will in our lives in a different way. His sovereign will is what God allows to happen even when it's outside his moral will. It deals with things like sin and the brokenness of the world and evil. Things that God is sovereign over and he is allowed to happen, but they aren't consistent with his moral will. You see, at some point, his moral will and his sovereign will will come together and be the exact same thing. It's what happens in the Lord's Prayer when, when Jesus ends it with, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, in heaven, God's sovereign will and his moral will are exactly the same. Everything is done the exactly according to his moral will. But in this broken world, it's a little different. And we often don't know his sovereign will until we live it in that moment. I never knew, there was nothing in the Bible that could prepare me 
for the fact that my brother would be killed in a plane crash when I was 23 years old. I couldn't have memorized a verse. I couldn't have studied the Bible anymore. That was an event in God's sovereign will that I only found out the moment that it happened. And when that's revealed to you, it leaves you troubled. It causes you to ask some questions. And that happens to all of us. It could be a health issue that comes up in a moment. You had no idea and you go in for a routine checkup and suddenly you're dealing with a medical issue that you go, I had no, no box for this to fit into my life. It could be a, a marriage that fell apart, that's left you crushed or, or hurt, wondering, I never signed up for this. This was never my intention when I stepped to the altar at that moment. And yet, and a partner abandons or a, a parent leaves, and now you're you know, without a parent or you're without a spouse. Maybe it's a financial crisis that you come across that you didn't do anything to walk into, but there it is. And now you're left to deal with the results of it. These are issues that are part of God's sovereign will in our lives. This was part of God's sovereign will in Mary's life. He was revealing, Mary, I've chosen you and my son is coming through you. This wasn't a moral thing. God doesn't say to you and and me and to every wife, he says, hey, all of you, if you're gonna obey me, you gotta give birth to a a divine son. Otherwise, you, you can't be one of my children. He doesn't do that. Right? This was a part of his sovereign plan he was choosing Mary for, and she's hearing it, and she's going, whoa, what does this mean for me? I mean, I'm a young girl. I'm not even married yet. What are people going to think of me when I'm pregnant, and we're supposed to be in the one-year period of purity to reveal that? Well, the story goes on to tell us how God operates, and we see that as we continue He says, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And he says here, then the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Here's my second point, and we'll talk about this a little bit in terms of what that means, is the accomplishment of God's will in my life requires God's supernatural work. The accomplishment of God's will in my life requires God's supernatural work. Even here in this passage, God's talking about the supernatural aspect of it. It's the Holy Spirit that will come upon you, the power of the Most High. Mary's asking, how will this be since I'm a virgin? I don't understand how this is going to take place. And she asks it like we all do, Lord, how am I supposed to do this? And that's our nature. See, we think when God lays out a plan or when he gives us something, he says, okay, now it's up to me to to accomplish this on my own. And when God does his miraculous work, it's because of his supernatural power. It's not us measuring it up. It's not us pulling up our bootstraps and, and figuring out how to do it. It's him working in a unique supernatural way in our lives. See, it's not our nature from birth to obey God. 
to choose purity or to be selfless in a marriage or to be generous with our stuff. That's not our, our human nature. Our human nature by nature is selfish. And so when, when we're going to be a, a child of God, we're, we can't do it on our own. We trust. We put our faith in Jesus Christ, and the Bible says you're born again. God gives you a new supernatural nature so that you will begin doing things that aren't what you would normally do if you were left to yourself. That's part of his supernatural work. He doesn't give us all these guidelines and say, okay, Chad, you figure out how to obey all these so you can be right with me. He does a supernatural work in our lives. In fact, even in these stories, you see it. And if you understand how these historians would write and the Gospels are written, you see that Luke, I think, did this very methodically. That's what he said to Theophilus. Notice in this first section, the, the chapter divisions didn't come about for hundreds of years later in the Bible. They're just in there for ease and of use to find things. But most likely, all this narrative part would have gone together in one section. You see John's announcement of his birth. You see Jesus' announcement. You see John's birth. You see Jesus' birth. And when authors would write like that, their intention was to have you compare the stories, compare and contrast what's happening in these stories. And even in that, you see the supernatural work of God in the stories, in particular for someone who is familiar with the story of God's people. Think about it. Zechariah and Elizabeth from John's story, Zechariah was a priest he was a teacher of the law. He would have known the Old Testament extremely well. He would have known the history of God's people. He would have known the story of how God's people came about. And every Jewish person, in particular a priest, would have been familiar with the person of Abraham. You remember Abraham, the one who God finally called out to form his people? And when he did so, he said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham's going, yeah, that's... that's pretty funny, God. I'm like 90 years old and my wife's about the same and she's been barren her whole life and you're gonna, you've given me a promise of a son and through that son, you know, nations are going to come and, and the whole world is going to be blessed and God says, I'm going to give you a son, Abraham. So many years go by and nothing. And so Abraham and Sarah, like many of us, take things into their own hands and they bring in a maidservant, Hagar, and he has a son through Hagar. And another 13 years go on with Ishmael, that son coming out, and God says, no, Abraham, I told you, I'm going to give you a son. By now, he's like 100 years old, and she's been barren. Sarah still can't have kids. And God said, I'm going to do it this way because my promises always come about through my supernatural work. It's so that you can't take any credit for the grace I'm going to show you, Abraham. And here's what's interesting about that. Zechariah and the story right before this. Zechariah is a priest. If anyone knew that story of Abraham and Sarah, Zechariah would have. And when God comes to him, who's old, and Elizabeth who's old, and Elizabeth who's barren, and he says, you guys are going to conceive a child. And Zechariah goes, how can this possibly be? I've I can't know how this is going to happen. If anyone should have known how it could happen, Zechariah should have. And miraculously, they conceive in their old age. But then, in the story of Jesus, 
God takes it to a whole other level. He doesn't come to those who are barren and do a miracle for them to have children. He comes to a woman who is a virgin and doesn't even have a husband at that moment to give birth. He says, I'm going to give you a child without ever having sexual relations. That is a whole nother level. And as he reveals it, he shows the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. He says he's going to be the son of the Most High. That was a a title only for a son of God, the Most High God. Meaning God's going to be his father, but you are going to carry this child, Mary. He's going to be a son, so he's going to be human, but he's going to be the son of the Most High, so he's going to be divine. He's going to be a king from David, so he's going to be human, but he's going to be a king who reigns forever, so he's going to be divine. And a miracle that had never happened before is coming together at this moment in this person. And what God is essentially doing in Mary is creating a second Adam. You see, the first Adam had no parent. The first Adam was shaped and formed and created perfectly from God out of the dust of the ground. He was innocent from his first day and fell into sin. And every human being since then has been born with a sinful nature. That's why no human being born of man and woman could ever save us because they're no different than us. But God in Mary shaped a second Adam and put his divine son in this creation. And not only was he born innocent, He lived a perfect, sinless life so that he might be a sacrifice for you and for me. It was a supernatural work so that we could not take credit for what he did. This is what's so amazing about Christianity. You see, every other religion, every other world religion says, follow these rules measure up to this standard and this God will accept you. Christianity says you can't measure up to this standard so I'm going to send my own son to meet a standard for you that you could never meet. And when you trust in him, what happens is, is God says I accept you now through him. Acceptance comes first through faith in Jesus Christ. And from that acceptance, a transformation, a supernatural work occurs in you that then moves you to begin living consistently with who you are. Every other religion, you measure up, you meet these standards, then God accepts you. Christianity, I accept you first in my son, and through that, I transform you into the son or daughter that I've saved you to be. The last thing we see in here is our response. What God does, he speaks into our lives. He speaks truth into our lives, and it troubles us at times and causes questions. How does he do it? How does he bring it about through a supernatural work? But finally, what's our response? Well, we see from Mary, a perfect example at the very end. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Here's my point, my final point. My response to God's will in my life should be humble submission. My response to God's will in my life should be humble submission. 
Mary's a great model for us of humble acceptance of God's will in her life. No doubt she had some questions, no doubt she probably had concerns about what this was going to look like around town and, and even what that conversation was going to be like with Joseph when she had to go to him and tell him that she's pregnant and the child's not his. No doubt all those things were probably running through her head at that moment. But above and beyond all that mess and all those things whirling around, she said, be it unto me according to your word. I'm a, a bondservant. I'm a servant of yours, Lord, and whatever you deem necessary for me, I'll do it. Mary's a great example, but there's an infinitely greater example, a truer and greater Mary in the scriptures. One who didn't just submit to God's will and through it become part of a much greater plan that actually exalted her in some way and made her known to others. This greater Mary, this truer Mary, was one who had all that exaltation, had all that glory, and instead of being lifted up by being part of this plan, was actually pushed down. Instead of being connected as a human to the divine plan, this person went from the divine plan to being wrapped in the human one and became vulnerable in a way that he'd never been vulnerable before. And that Mary, that greater, truer, submissive servant, it was Jesus Christ, who took on human flesh and came down as a baby humble, vulnerable, touchable, killable, so that you and I, who deserve to be separated, you and I who did not deserve to be part of this greater plan, could have a hope that we would have never had had he not taken on human flesh and become a sacrifice for your sin and for mine. Christmas is about a miraculous intersection of God and humanity. And when God's will intersects with our life, it always causes a little bit of turmoil. It always raises some questions in our lives. It always requires some supernatural work on his part for us. And it always requires that we humbly trust him and submit to his plan. So let me leave you with just a couple thoughts today as we continue in our Advent season. We've seen Mary's story and we see how it connects to the greater picture, but, but what does this look like for us? What does it look like for you and me today? Is there some truth in God's will, whether it's in his moral will or maybe just in his sovereign will in your life, is there some way he has revealed his will to you today or in this Christmas season that's left you troubled, that you're asking questions about? And you're saying, well, well wait a minute. I, I need to behave this way within my marriage relationship. I need to do what with my finances? You're asking me to operate my business with honesty and integrity? when I'm surrounded with people in the same type of business that are cutting corners and, and cheating here and doing these things to, to get ahead and I'm going to be left vulnerable if I try to do things in a way that you want me to do them, God? 
Maybe as a single, God's challenging you to live your life differently than all those around you. And you're being challenged to trust him, to step into your circumstance and do a supernatural work that you can't do on your own. Maybe you've come to recognize that the doors you've been looking for and the transitions and the hopes and maybe a move or a, a job change or, or all these things you've been praying for and everywhere you turn it's just a roadblock or a dead end and none of those things seem to be turning in your direction. And God's revealing his sovereign will but it's not what you want it to be right now. Can you trust him? Can you remember that many people waited for hundreds of years to hear this pronouncement? And yet the years of silence in no way removed the faithfulness of God to bring about his plan in his perfect timing. You see, Christmas is all about the hope that we have in God's infinite, grand, historical plan no matter where we find ourselves. And Mary's story and her celebration is our celebration. We can join with her in that celebration because it's our Savior as well as hers. As we celebrate Christmas this year, may we experience the true hope that comes in Jesus Christ. A greater hope, a lasting hope, that extends beyond the pages of history and will go throughout all of eternity in your life and in mine. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you for the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that wherever we might find ourselves now, maybe we feel like Mary, and we're unknown, and we're lost in a, a city or in a place or in a circumstance that seems like no one notices who we are or, or what we are going through or where we've been. But Lord, may we remember that even Mary in this obscure little town, this young teenage girl, known by no one except maybe her parents, you saw her. You knew her, and you chose her to do a work through her that would bless us even 2,000 years later. Lord, I pray for each of us as your children as we celebrate Christmas, that we would remember the fact that it reminds us that you are a God who has chosen to step into time. You are a God who oversees the grand plan of time and a thousand years to you is like a day Lord may we never forget that you are working your wonderful plan even when we can't see it and as we celebrate the Lord Jesus birth may it remind us that your plan is always accomplished for our good Jesus' name we pray.